Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It's great to be back on the air. And I just realized something a moment ago. You know, here we are uh, talking about this book of Steve Vogel's Through the Perilous Fight from the Burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner, The Six Weeks That Saved the Nation. I just realized that uh, we've been talking about this book now for three weeks. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what's unique about tonight's podcast is that uh, this is going to be the uh, final episode, or should I say session, episode session of uh, Through the Perilous Fight. Um, We are now at the end of the uh, book, and um, we're going to be talking about the um, epilogue, uh, actually just before the end of the, uh, to the epilogue, and then to the actual epilogue itself. But to think um, that for what we've done in three weeks' time has been very uh, remarkable. Uh, this will be the uh, 17th uh, episode of Through the Perilous Fight. And even though that seems like a high number, I will say this. It was worth um, the discussion from the start to now the uh, finishing uh, touches of Through the Perilous Fight. Well, let's start off with this lead-off question. You know, Francis Scott Key, uh, first off, was not a big uh, fan of this war, and not many uh, American uh, people were, but is Mr. Key a Federalist or what we call a Jeffersonian Republican, or should I say Anti-Federalist? The answer is neither. Key himself is very disgusted with both political parties especially due to their unwillingness in working together prior to the war itself breaking out and in the aftermath of Washington's burning. He feels that um, despite the uh, vote to go to war on being on party lines, that was bad enough. The fact that both sides could not put aside any differences and find common ground to work together to help the country be better prepared early on, but at the same time, when you have a president who who doesn't believe in um, the importance of a standing army, even in a time of war, that just adds to uh, further uh, complications, and we know what happened as a result of that, not protecting your nation's capital, not fortifying it, look what happened. All the buildings got burned with the exception of the patent uh, building. Why the patent building got spared, I don't know. But we've now uh, learned through all these other podcast sessions uh, what ramifications followed in the aftermath of Washington's burning. But a better question uh, to ask is, and it's really it's a two-part question here, Did Francis Scott Key become more optimistic after the American victories at Baltimore and Lake Champlain? Yes and no. On the yes side, he saw, especially at at Baltimore, where he himself witnessed the bombardment of Fort McHenry, he saw how galvanized the American people became with going above and beyond to protect their city, most notably being Baltimore in the aftermath of Washington's burning. Not long after 
Washington was burnt, the people of Baltimore knew that the inevitable was at stake, that their city was going to be the next big target. So what did the people do? They started working together uh, to better strengthen their defense walls. Uh, Militiamen were coming from Virginia and Pennsylvania. And as I said from a previous podcast, there were anywhere from about fifteen to 20,000 men ready to, uh, d- to defend the city at all angles. So the bottom line is that, yes, Francis Scott Key himself was able to see just how resilient the American people were. And I do believe that it had to take uh, the burning of our nation's capital to make people become more, um, not just, um, I don't think optimistic is the right word here, but more um, appreciative of what can happen when your own government does not do a good job of protecting not only the buildings that house its own people, being those of the government, but when they don't protect the outside, meaning like, say, the outlying areas of Washington, then you have to have to wonder, hey, what can we do differently? Because it's like that saying, even in today's time, the government may not always be around to protect you or to help you, but you're going to have to find a way to help not only yourself and your community, but hey, ask what you can do for your country like what President Kennedy said years ago. So it's a combination of many things, but nonetheless, Francis Scott Key is very uh, pleased at how um, the American people became um, galvanized and protect in going above and beyond to defend um, Baltimore, and it did pay off in the end. As for the, the, um, the side of where uh, he would say no to uh, not being optimistic, he was very concerned about the military's lack of ability to defend the nation's capital. It might coincide with what I just said a moment ago. Yes, he was um, very concerned about the nation's uh, cap, uh, what do you call it, ability to defend the capital going forward in the future. Military forces were at this time, uh, right up to leading, up to leading. Uh, to the, ba- the burning of Washington, military forces were more concerned about invading Canada, north of the border. They were more concerned about liberating the Canadian people. But remember, folks, the Canadian people are happy being subjects to, to England. But nonetheless, here we are sending everybody up north to invade Canada when there was no strategy to defend uh, the heart of uh, our government. So there's a double-edged sword right there. Here's another question right here. Did the movement for relocating our nation's capital have momentum early on? Yes. As I said from a previous podcast, many New Englanders were already unhappy with the war. But despite the victory at Baltimore, some governors had opposed letting their state militias be placed under federal control and advocated opposition to men enlisting in the U.S. Army. So think about this, people. Why would you feel comfortable about the government um, controlling your state militia when your own government couldn't even defend its own um, surroundings? That's a that's a tough question. That's a uh, 
that's a tough sell right there. If you can't defend your own um, homeland in terms of your own capital and its outlying buildings, then why would people, that I should say, why would the American people feel good about the government taking control of, this, of all state militias? There also wasn't enough confidence or support in the government's ability to ensure protection from within Washington, but also along the uh, coast. The coast meaning, you know, the cities, say, you know, like Baltimore, Annapolis, Philadelphia, Boston, New York City, Charleston, Norfolk, um, Wilmington, North Carolina, Savannah, Georgia. So you think about it, even with the victory at Baltimore, there still is a lot of uncertainty. We've still got a long ways to go to um, restore uh, confidence, not just from within the government, but from the American people as a whole. Now, on October 17th of 1814, a bill to move the Capitol passed the House on its first reading, but Washington's supporters, most notably the people of Washington, came through to where a resolution was reached and this resolution allowed our nation's uh, capital to remain intact. Um, in other words, it was not going to go anywhere. And the citizens of Washington even went as far as willing to pledge money to loan the go our government. Here early on, a few years back, by the, st by the time the war started, President Madison couldn't even ensure that the um, city of Washington would even be able to be protected on his own watch. And now, with a, an ironic twist of fate, the citizens of Washington now are saying, hey, with all these victories, with these two big victories at Baltimore and in Lake Champlain, we're willing to give you all a second chance because we believe that keeping the government here will tell England that, hey, Yes, you may have burned our capital and burned the white, burned the president's house down, all these other buildings, but we're going to rebuild and we're going to even be stronger and better than we were before. Well, what part um, did former President Thomas Jefferson play in helping get Washington rebuilt? Well, for one, I should say this: Thomas Jefferson's back home in Monticello. And I know he's glad to be back there, considering that when he left um, office in 1809, he had been back to Monticello, but he was not there on a regular basis. As a matter of fact, he was not really there on a regular basis during a 40-year span from 1769, uh, the time that he first begins building Monticello until he leaves public office for good in 1809. But anyways, the, as, as we know from a previous podcast, the Library of Congress was one of many buildings burnt by the British. It turns out that Jefferson himself had planned to offer his collection of over 6,000 books to Congress upon his death. But the burning of Washington changes everything. Jefferson's book collection at the time was the, considered to be the largest one in the United States. Jefferson offered to sell his collection of over 6,000 books to Congress. Congress, in the end, approved the proposal. I want you all to take a guess. 
How much um, money did Congress? How much money was did Congress go about purchasing Jefferson's library for? I'll give you a hint. The number is between twenty and thirty thousand dollars. The answer is twenty-three thousand nine hundred and fifty dollars. That was a lot of money. And after all, uh, Congress does need a library of its own to turn to. So what do you know? Ten wagon loads of books from Monticello come to Washington. And it's safe to say that Jefferson himself knew that Congress would not regret their decision. Of course, Thomas Jefferson said throughout most of his adult life, I cannot live without books. Even though, yes, he gave over 6,000 books to Congress, that is 6,000 books of his own, he still had enough room at Monticello for plenty of other books to compensate for his uh, generous donation. But nonetheless, a very nice gesture on the part of a former president. What peace treaty ended the War of 1812? It was none other than the Treaty of Ghent. What did the treaty accomplish besides ending the war? Well, the treaty itself restored relations between the United States and England to status quo antebellum, which being a Latin phrase means the situation as it existed before the war. In other words, the matter at stake here revolved around restoring both nations' borders, or should I say territory-wise, prior to June 1812. Here are some good examples right here from where both sides benefited. The treaty itself released all prisoners to restoring all captured lands and ships. The U.S. got 10 million acres of territory returned, being areas near, lake, near two Great Lakes, being Superior and Michigan. They also got all the territory, including Maine, now, of course, Maine's not a state at this time. Maine doesn't become a state until 1820. But the state of Massachusetts owns Maine. Maine is considered to be part of Massachusetts. Now, as for the British, the American-held areas of Upper Canada, what we now know as present-day Ontario, were, were returned to um, England. As for American-held territory in Spanish Florida, that got returned to Spain, who was neutral throughout the entire war. Now, in January of 1815, or should I say January 8th of 1815, the American forces under the command of General Andrew Jackson defeated the British at the Battle of New Orleans. And, <laughs> what do you know, 18 days earlier... The Treaty of Ghent was already signed, but, but it took a month for the news surrounding this peace treaty to reach the United States. So therefore, a war, or not so much a war, but a battle, has another battle has already broken out. And this time, this battle was the battle to end the War of 1812 altogether. The American forces despite being outnumbered, literally routed the British in, in just 30 minutes. It was the final victory on a battlefield being that of American soil, which ended this war altogether. 
But on February 16th of 1815, the U.S. Senate voted 35 to nothing in favor of ratifying the Treaty of Ghent. And it was in March of 1815 that the last of the British forces left American territory, being New Orleans in the aftermath of defeat. Now, while all of this is great news, what's even better news to report is that once the treaty is ratified, now our government can go about rebuilding Washington. In March of 1815, the U.S. Senate voted 20 to 13 to restore Washington as it was. In February, President Madison signs legislation allowing the government to borrow $500,000, or what we now what we refer to as half a million dollars, to rebuild the presidential house, the Capitol, and all the other, other government buildings that got burnt. So therefore, in the aftermath of the Treaty of Ghent, Reconstruction um, starts taking place in Washington. Now, who is James Hoban? He was the original builder of the President's House, and he was hired once again to oversee the rebuilding of the mansion, including the War and Treasury buildings. Benjamin Latrobe, he was the original designer of the U.S. Capitol, and he himself was brought back to oversee the Capitol's reconstruction. There is a place in western Pennsylvania outside of Pittsburgh known as Latrobe. It's named in Benjamin Latrobe's honor. And while all this is going on, the Navy Yard itself is undergoing a um, rebuilding process. And, it and the Navy Yard will include a new 10-foot high wall to protect against looters. Now that 10-foot high wall is pretty revolutionary for its time. Now who is uh, Jacob Barker? He was a businessman. And it turns out that Mr. Barker had Gilbert Stewart's portrait of George Washington in his possession. Where was the portrait all along in the aftermath of Washington's burning? It was, at, it was located in a Maryland farmhouse for um, protection slash safety purposes. So Mr. Barker uh, brought the uh, portrait back to Washington to have it be um, restored uh, to where it was hanging in the president's house. All right, now we're going to move on to the second part here, and this is uh, what we now call the epilogue. The epilogue is what we call the final uh, leg or the final piece to um, a book, or in this case, the final piece of this um, podcast uh, session. And we've got a lot to get through, but we're going um, to make it count. In other words, we're going to make it happen. Our first question for our epilogue discussion is the following. In order to be better prepared militarily, going forward in the future, what did the United States need? Well, we needed a variety of things to happen. The U.S. would need a stronger, or should I say a strong, 
army that would undergo regular forms of training. And we're not just talking training that would only happen once every six months. We're talking about training that's going to have to be consistent. And it's going to have to be consistent enough to where um, we need to be prepared for anything to handle big and small. We certainly hope that it doesn't happen here at home, but we still have to be prepared to know how to take on anything that could have um, the equivalent of uh, national security implications. We also need to have uh, better officer leadership on all levels. We must have a military academy that could churn out men who would be committed to serving their country on a longer-term basis. We have West Point in um, along the Hudson um, Valley in New York State. However, West Point is only about, I'd say, almost 15 years old at this time. It will eventually make a true name for itself. But we do need military academies that are going to help prepare men to uh, not only know what it's like to engage, be engaged in warfare, but to serve their country in a time of peace as well. Here's another question to think about. Did the Second War of Independence eliminate all ties to America's colonial past? The answer is yes. The American victories at Baltimore, Lake Champlain, and lastly New Orleans, including the Treaty of Ghent, helped put an end altogether to the American Revolution. So I think it's safe to say, and, and having read this book, it is safe to say that the American Revolution never really did end. Even after the Treaty of Paris in 1783, it, it never really ended 100%. We were still fighting a war on the high seas. We were trying to find our place, but, we, but it was um, halted by the British. You know, in other words, they said, they said to us, okay, you may have beaten us on the battlefield, but we still have the upper hand on the waters, and we're going to still make your lives miserable by impressing your sailors and restricting your ability to trade anywhere in the world you want to you, you want to go to. So it did take a second war uh, for independence to really prove that hey we um, should be allowed to um, to um, enjoy all economic freedoms in the same way that countries like England and France are allowed to. It is safe to say that factors ranging from partisan strife, economic chaos, to poor military leadership, and weak presidential executive authority all contributed to a rough beginning for nearly three years of the war's existence. But after the burning of Washington, all of the above just described did improve. It didn't improve overnight, but it did improve with time. All right, we're going to now start talking about... Uh, people who, whose names were of significant relevance. In some cases, maybe not for the right reasons, but they, their names still need to be mentioned. I, I picked out those that I thought were perhaps, um, that were uh, perhaps uh, worth uh, sharing. 
Whatever happened to Brigadier General William Winder, who was responsible for the debacle at Bladensburg, Maryland? Well, in 1815, he was tried in a military court, but the jurors found him not guilty for any wrongdoings, given all the uncertainties that the military as a whole faced on August 24th, 1814. While this may have been a relief for uh, William Winder, he was able to resume his law practice, where he, to me he seemed to be better at versus being a military leader. He did serve um, a stint in the Maryland State Senate. He died in 1824, but the debacle at Bladensburg never left him. It was something that I've obviously haunted him for probably the last 10 years of his life. Well, President James Madison sure had a a whirlwind of a presidency. I think it's safe to say the War of 1812 really consumed most of his presidency. After he left the... After after leaving... um, the, the highest office in the land in 1817, he never returned to Washington. And the same could be said for the past two presidents, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Well, shoot, Washington's a wilderness. It still was somewhat of a wilderness even after, um, even after the uh, burnings of Washington had taken place. But as for uh, former President James Madison, he spent the last 19 years of his life at home in Montpelier. And I've been to his home before. Uh, It's been probably about 10 years since my wife and I were there last, but uh, Montpelier is in Orange County, Virginia, about 30 miles north of uh, Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. And it's a very nice estate. Uh, As a matter of fact, um, you can definitely spend a, a day there, and you could even make it a weekend trip, not just to Montpelier, but Uh, Orange County also is known for its uh, good share of wineries as well. But anyways, Montpelier, at the time that James Madison um, was living there, was a 5,000-acre plantation. He thoroughly enjoyed experimenting with agricultural techniques to sharing weather observations with Thomas Jefferson. Madison died in June of 1836. He was 85 years old. And most people did not live to be 85 in that day of time. To me, James Madison will always be remembered as the father of our Constitution as well as for being the founding father of our Bill of Rights. Is it fair to say that being president might not have been his greatest achievement? Uh, Perhaps so. While, on the other hand, though, the victories at Baltimore... Uh, Lake Champlain and uh, New Orleans did help improve his legacy somewhat as president. But I do believe that his role early on in shaping our Constitution, as well as getting a Bill of Rights implemented for all Americans to enjoy, will always be something that James Madison is ought to be remembered for. Had it not been for him, I don't know um, who would have stepped forward and seen to it that a Bill of Rights was established. 
Now, as for his estate in Montpelier, it was sold in 1844 by his wife, Dolly. It was sold due to ec economic hardships that included crop failures. So where did Dolly go? She um, moved to Washington and lived there until her death in 1849. And what do you know? When Her death was the largest state funeral that Washington itself had ever seen. One of the things Dolly Madison loved doing most as a first lady was throwing parties. So it is very fitting to say that Dolly, um, Dolly enjoyed the social life. She enjoyed bringing people together. Matter of fact, she even served as a hostess for Thomas Jefferson when he was president. Why? Well, Thomas Jefferson's wife, Martha, died in 1782. He never remarried. So when he was president, sometimes his oldest daughter um, would uh, serve as a hostess. But oftentimes Dolly Madison would be the one to fill in more. So it's safe to say that Dolly was quite a, uh, an established figure in Washington. Now, uh, a fellow named Paul Jennings, he is worth pointing out because I had mentioned from an earlier podcast that it was him and another group of servants that um, brought down uh, the portrait of George Washington, or should I say Gilbert Stewart's portrait of George Washington. Paul Jennings uh, was one of President Madison's dearest uh, servants, Dolly uh, was originally going to free him, but when she um, had to sell Montpelier, that all changed. Uh, she had to uh, she sold him in 1846. But the good news was that Paul Jennings himself had his freedom bought by Senator Daniel Webster of Massachusetts. Paul Jennings um, had a very good life after being freed. He thrived in freedom. He had a family. He even worked for the U.S. Department of Interior. He lived in Washington where he died in 1874. And it turns out that his descendants live in D.C. Matter of fact, when Barack Obama became president, descendants of Paul Jennings actually came to the White House and were able to tell the story to President Obama about how their ancestor, Paul Jennings, worked for President Madison, not just worked for him, but was a servant and had a, and had a crucial part in helping um, save the portrait of uh, George Washington. Remember John Stuart Skinner, folks? The American agent for prisoner exchanges? He was the one that uh, inspected all of the um, mail that came in from England into Annapolis, Maryland. He was also the one that set the schedules for sailings for ships that came in and out of Annapolis. Well, um, what, um, what, what happened with him? Well, after the war, he was rewarded for, for his wartime service with the job as Baltimore's postmaster. He went on to become the founder of two pioneering periodicals. And these are two pretty good, impressive, or two very good, impressive ones, I should say. The first was The American Farmer. It was the first successful publication covering agriculture in the U.S., and the second one being American Turf Register and Sporting Magazine. 
It was the nation's first sports magazine. He went on to um, live to be age 63, and he died in 1851. But nonetheless, he accomplished a lot in his lifetime. If it weren't for him, I don't know who, we, who would have been successful at being um, an American agent for prisoner exchanges. After all, it was him and uh, Francis Scott Key who did the unthinkable by um, helping secure Dr. William Beans's freedom. And as a matter of fact, speaking of Dr. William Beans, what did he do um, after uh, being released from enemy ship? Well, after his release from captivity, he resumed his medical practice in Upper Marlboro. He remained very dear friends with Francis Scott Key until his death at age 80 in 1828. Think about it. Dr. Beans was able to live to see um, not only Washington um, come back to life, but he got to see James Monroe um, be our... Um, fifth president. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk about James Monroe now. James Monroe. Well, he succeeded James Madison by, by becoming our nation's fifth president. And he served from 1817 to 1825. In his eight years of office, or should I say during the eight years he was in office, there was nothing but widespread success including periods of peace, prosperity, and nonpartisanship. It was known as the era of good feelings. His presidency saw many good things happen. One of them was the collapse of the Federalist Party. I know it might sound harsh to say, but the Federalist Party um, really had uh, wreaked havoc on our country, especially um, towards the end, towards the latter years of its existence. Uh, the Federalists really were the ones that wanted to secede from the Union, especially with all of the early debacles from the War of 1812, even with that infamous Embargo Act of 1807 that Thomas Jefferson signed. The Federalists really just were not happy people. But once they, their party collapsed, um, James Monroe himself was able to establish, help establish a trend of nationalization where, federal where the federal government took on greater roles in overseeing transportation projects. And here are some good ones. Any of you all know the Erie Canal? The canal that uh, went from the Hudson River all the way to um, the Great Lakes? as well as the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal. That was more of a secondary canal, but, um, but still it had a, a vital role. And to, Amer to eventually what would become America's first railroad, which didn't officially open until 1828, being three years after James Monroe left the White House. But it was a huge um, milestone, the, our, that first railroad being the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. And believe it or not, only one signer of the Declaration of Independence is still alive in 1828. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were the, other, were the only other two men left. You, you had three men left by July 4th, 1826. And of course, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams pass away 
The only other man who's left is Charles Carroll of Maryland. I mentioned about him from uh, the previous uh, podcast session where, not from the other night, but from the book uh, Signing Their Lives Away, The Fame and Misfortune of the Men Who Signed the Declaration of Independence. Well, Charles Carroll was the last signer to die. He lived to be 95 years old, died in 1832. Now, living to be 95 back then was very unheard of. But what's but Charles Carroll, I mean, the man accomplished a lot of things. But one of the big milestones he accomplished was serving on the board of directors for the Baltimore-Ohio Railroad. He laid the first cornerstone or the first building block or rock whatever you want to call it, he laid the first foundation at the inaugural ceremony of the Baltimore-Ohio Railroad's opening. It's very fair to say that uh, James Monroe's presidency was, in fact, one of uh, good feelings. But one of the most important things that James Monroe established was in 1824, the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine prohibited any European nation from making any attempt at colonizing um, in, in the Western Hemisphere. And I think it's very fair to say that this was essential, given what we had just been through um, 10 years earlier with the burning of Washington and rebuilding our country, getting our country back on the right track. Why would we want to have a foreign country making attempts at colonizing nations not far from us? You know, the French tried to colonize Haiti, and look what happened there in 1804. The, Haitians, the Haitian people overthrew the French. So that, would, that could have been an early example of what would come into play 20 years later when James Monroe established the Monroe Doctrine outlying all out forbidding all any European nation from attempting to colonize um, a country in the Western Hemisphere. So under James Monroe, the President's House to what would become the White House was rebuilt and became a symbol of unity. I tell you, I'm glad we had James Monroe as our president from 1817 to 1825 because if he wasn't president, I'm not so sure we might have had an era of good feelings. That's not to say it's, it, that it couldn't have happened, but James Monroe was the right person at the right time to make America great for all the right reasons. But thank you, James Monroe, nonetheless. Whatever happened to the roughly three to 5,000 former slaves from the Chesapeake region who sought refuge by joining, or I should say taking up arms with the British? Well, all of them met a variety of different fates. Most of them got sent to Nova Scotia, where they more than likely died in the winter of 1815. Others died from disease or poverty. A handful were sent to the West Indies, where supposedly they were sold back into slavery. But whatever happened to the colonial Marines, all, all of those men, being they were uh, composed of slaves, they all seemed to have fared better. 
It turns out that all six companies were garrisoned in Bermuda for 14 months and helped assist in building a new Royal Navy dockyard. Many of them eventually went on to live in Trinidad, being a British colony off the coast of South America. As for Francis Scott Key, he would resume practicing law after war's end. And yes, he would go on to become one of Washington's most prominent citizens, especially as he was such a great lawyer. Well, does besides just being a regular lawyer, does Francis Scott Key get a promotion? Well, yes, uh, President Andrew Jackson appointed Francis Scott Key as U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia. He became the capital's chief prosecutor. And after the War of 1812 ended, he became more and more involved on the issue of slavery. But it wasn't confined to just one aspect of slavery. He was involved on both sides of the slavery issue. Here are some examples. In one case, he represented a slave owner who had opposed freedom for the children of a free mulatto woman. And on the, other, on the opposite side, he was known to provide legal advice to slaves seeking emancipation. Francis Scott Key himself became a confidant and legal advisor to President Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson even went as far as sending Key himself to Alabama to mediate a dispute with the state government over federal promises to move settlers from Creek Indian reservations. I think it's safe to say that uh, Francis Scott Key didn't miss out on a whole lot. His expertise was needed at all levels. He had a huge part in the rise of his brother-in-law, Roger Taney, who had become U.S. Attorney General in 1831 and Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court in 1836, and Roger Taney replaced John Marshall. And Mr. Taney himself would be the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court up until 1864. So for about 20, not the full 30 years, but close to 30 years, he was on the, serving on the nation's highest court in the highest position. As for Key himself, he continued to practice law up until the end of 1842. Sadly, on January 11, 1843, Mr. Key died of pleurisy or a complication of pneumonia at the age of 63. And what do you know? He died just a few miles away from Fort McHenry, where, where aboard a truce ship 29 years earlier, he watched... From that ship, the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air. Throughout the night, wondering, come morning, if our flag would still be standing. And what do you know? Our flag was still standing. It had stood the test of time. 
it had stood the test of some of our dark of our nation's darkest hours and darkest years in a short time span. But in the end, he saw with that flag waving high and mighty above Fort McHenry that the United States as a country was meant to stay, not just for short term, but for the long term. Well, the flags in Washington and Baltimore were lowered to half-mast. Interesting enough, Francis Scott Key himself was first buried at St. Paul's Church in Baltimore. However, by 1898, he and his wife Polly were reinterred at Mount Olivet, Mount Olivet Cemetery in Frederick. Frederick, Maryland, that is. And I have friends of mine from college who probably would know about where the cemetery is located in Frederick. Well, it turns out that underneath the monument where Francis Scott Key is buried, there is a sculpture of Key himself atop a granite pedestal. A congressional resolution was passed. And what a fitting way for Francis Scott Key to be remembered. Not just to have a, a sculpture of himself atop this pedestal, but an American flag flies over his grave 24 hours a day. The man, the man and the occasion must meet. My gosh, he wrote what would be our nation's national anthem. He didn't just sit down one night at a desk and wrote leisurely. Writing our nation's national anthem, he did so shortly after being released from the truce ship. But it was that profound experience on the night between September 13th and September 14th of 1814 that allowed him to become so galvanized and, wonder, and, and wanting to know, hey, what can I do for my country in this darkest hour? I'm not going to ask what my country can do for me. I'm going to ask what I can do for the country. And that is to write a song about what I saw and how it impacted me, how it can impact the rest of the American people, not just in the present but going forward in the future, how my song can help inspire future generations. Because future generations of Americans did see struggles. But through the night, and the night meaning with it being dark, dark can, darkness brings uncertainty, but through the night, is our flag going to still be there come the next day? The answer is yes, and that has proven to be the case all these years later, people. It wasn't just one night back in 1814, or should I say between September 13th and the 14th of 1814, it's been this way ever since. No matter how big or small the crises have been, our flag has still remained standing, mighty, tall, from sea to shining sea. This is what Francis Scott Key sacrificed for us people. And it is rightfully fitting that a flag, an American flag, should fly over his grave. 
the flag itself must never be forgotten. Because if there wasn't a flag flying over his grave, how would we know that our flag would still be there? He is the Father. He, I, I say he is the Father, not just of our national anthem, but he is the Father of, of our American flag in terms of no matter where you go. An American flag isn't confined to just one place. All of us have an American flag to fly mighty because of Francis Scott Key. Let's get into some other um, interesting trivia here, people. True or false, the American flag had not been a major national symbol before the War of 1812. The answer is true. The American flag had served in a more functional role during and after the American Revolution, especially when it came to marking U.S. military installations, in other words, posts. But prior to the War of 1812, what symbols represented national identity? There were two, the Bald Eagle and Lady Liberty. I shared this a moment ago. Maybe I should just uh, reiterate it right here. Francis Scott Key's description of the American flag flying over Fort McHenry after the British bombardment created an impression that couldn't be forgotten. In a nutshell, um, the flag flying over Fort McHenry was meant to show that through our nation's darkest hours, the flag would still be there standing, guiding us from uncertainty to signs of hope and a promise for better days ahead. Did the Star-Spangled Banner become our nation's national anthem after the War of 1812? Uh, believe it or not, the answer is no. However, the song at first became a standard at patriotic gatherings, which included Independence Day to George Washington's birthday. The song was very popular around Washington and Baltimore. Rightfully so. Think about it. Washington was, had been burnt. Baltimore had been saved, but in the aftermath with the victory at Baltimore, the hope for rebuilding Washington inspired us to keep Washington as our nation's permanent capital, and it too needed an American flag, and not just an American flag, but a flag, but an American flag that would be waving high and mighty to to prove once again, that through the night, the flag would still be standing. The Star-Spangled Banner itself was just one of several songs which served temporarily as our nation's national anthem. Other songs were Hail Columbia to Yankee Doodle. Now, in 1889, the U.S. Navy and Army each gave the Star-Spangled Banner a more formal status as a national anthem to be played at ceremonial raising and lowering of the flag. In 1903, the United States Navy became the first military branch to require its servicemen to stand during the playing of the Star-Spangled Banner. And by World War I, the Army and Navy have designated the Star-Spangled Banner as our national anthem to be played at ceremonies. 
What year uh, did Congress first attempt to pass official legislation making the Star Spangled Banner our national, our permanent national anthem? 1912. However, it didn't. Um, it didn't um, pass. The legislation lay dormant for nearly two decades due to opposition from people who disliked the song. How can you not like the song? Well, I don't know if people flat out said we don't like it because we just don't think it's the right vibe. It, one thing I did find out is that the reason why many people didn't like the song at first was because it had glorified war. But then again, Francis Scott Key himself was not a big fan of this war either. Here's a question. Which U.S. House of Representative member from the state of Maryland submit a bill proposing the Star-Spangled Banner as our nation's official national anthem? His name is John Charles Linthicum. And there is a town in Maryland known as Linthicum Heights that is connected to his family. It wasn't until March 3rd, 1931, and that was 89 years ago, people, but it was on that date that President Herbert Hoover signed into law our official anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. So the Star Spangled Banner, folks, has only been our nation's official national anthem for 89 years. Gosh, I thought, you know, our country, in terms of how long it had been around, in terms of the United States being 244 years is a long time. On one hand, that is, but our nation's national anthem has only been our official um, song for 89 years. That's still young. But nonetheless, uh, it's something we should all be very proud of. And I think Francis Scott Key would be very proud to know that, hey, even though it's only been around for 89 years as our official national anthem, it's still there. And it, res and it ought to resonate with us where we go because, because gave proof through the night that our flag was still there should always tell us that no matter where we go, we have a flag that we can turn to. We can ha have a flag that provides a beacon of hope when hope is sorely needed. Even right now with COVID-19, we still need to look at our flag for guidance. We still need to know that when we see a flag waving high and mighty in the air, that, it, that, our, that our flag's not going to give up on us. And we shouldn't give up on it. What's important about July 4th, 1831? This is the final uh, leg of our epilogue. Well, Francis Scott Key himself is at the U.S. Capitol speaking before a large crowd, celebrating. He's joining in on the festivities um, in honor of our 55th birthday. But there is some sad news to report on July 4th of 1831. President James Monroe died. He was 73 years old. He became the third president to die on July 4th. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson died five years earlier on July 4th, 1826. But of course, at this time, I don't, at the time 
all of this is going on, I don't believe anybody is aware that James Monroe has died. Charles Carroll of Maryland, who, as I mentioned earlier, was the last living person who signed the Declaration of Independence, he's still alive, but he will be the last signer to die, and he will die a year later in 1832, but he is there in attendance. Francis Scott Key delivered a speech that emphasized a great deal on the future of our young republic's 55-year history. I do know this, that the greatest danger facing our country was apathy itself. Apathy means that you don't have a whole lot of interest in something. You're taking it for granted, whatever the matter is. But this is what part of what Francis Scott Key said. We who inherit freedom may learn to value it less than the men who want it. Here is my interpretation. I hope that you all will find it to be relevant. The men who won our freedoms for us sacrificed everything to ensure future generations would have better lives to live because those who won our freedoms didn't have a whole lot else to go by that um, safeguarded their own personal liberties. In other words, our forefathers had spent many of years especially after the French and Indian War, um, living under a tyrannical regime of King George III that um, stripped our rights. In other words, we were taxed without our consent. But basically, we had lived in tyranny, oppression, and governmental exclusion None other than King George III in Parliament. They treated our, our, us as not just, I mean, they were treating us as subjects that um, whose lives didn't matter. Freedom isn't free. Future generations would be more likely to forget what past generations of men had sacrificed The fear of taking what we have for granted and not properly safeguarding all liberties, big and small. In other words, yes, we have freedom, but we can't forget what the past, what past generations did to help ensure that we have freedom today. Many men, or should I say people, died for for causes that were that they knew were right and what I know for a fact were right. In other words, many men in the American Revolution put their own lives on the line so that um, we would be able to one day live in a government that, um, that uh, didn't oppress people's rights to free speech, didn't oppress people's rights to assemble and petition, didn't oppress our rights to bear arms didn't oppress us from um, not being allowed to have the right to a fair and speedy trial, didn't oppress us to um, be free from um, cruel and unusual punishments. 
So we owe a huge debt of gratitude to our forefathers. We also owe a huge debt of gratitude to those who fought in the Second War of Independence. Please, people, don't take freedom for granted. Yes, we have it, but don't abuse it. But we have too many people out there who do abuse freedoms. The best thing any of us can do out there who know how to use our freedoms properly is to set good examples to those 